Well, open with me to Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter number 9, we are up to verse number 37. And we've been considering what it means to follow Christ here in these verses. And as the chapter comes to a close, we're going to have four different instances that give further instruction about following Christ. Or what is it to truly be a disciple of Christ. So I want us to consider our time remaining in this chapter here thinking about discipleship. And we're going to take these verses with the following headings. A desperate father... Confused disciples, rejecting Samaritans, and then distracted disciples. So let's read and then we'll consider these headings together. Luke 9, beginning in verse number 37. And it came to pass that on the next day when they were come down from the hill, much people met him. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son. For he is mine only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and suddenly crieth out. And it teareth him that he foameth again, and bruising him hardly departeth from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. And Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. And as he was yet a-coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for a time together with your church and your word. Lord, you know human limitations and surely you know my own. So I'm asking through the power of your Holy Spirit that in this time you will do what I cannot. Edify your church evangelize the lost. Thank you for the comfort we have from your word that you will build your church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We ask your blessing upon this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin with a desperate father. After the transfiguration, which we ended in last week, we see Peter with James, John, and Jesus coming down to the base of this hill or this mountain We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. And they find a crowd gathered there at the base. And in that crowd, there's a man who begged Jesus to look at his demon-possessed son, whom the other disciples have been unable to help. Now that is a key note in this passage. Evidently, while Jesus, Peter, James, and John are away, these disciples have tried to help with this demon-possessed son. Well, Jesus heals the boy, and after the boy is healed... We read that this crowd was amazed at the greatness of God. There again, another clue for us in the scriptures. When God gets the glory, then his will was done. So we praise the Lord for that. I want us to consider this particular heading under the subheadings of the victims and the victor. And we understand Jesus Christ to be the victor as he's able to help this young man here. But I also want us to consider the victims that we find in this passage. And it begins with a heartbroken father in verse number 38. Behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only child. So here's a man 
who begs Jesus to help his only son or his son. Then the next victim we find is the helpless son in verse 39. That we read about that a a demon has taken him that causes him to cry out, that tears at him, that causes him to foam at the mouth, that causes him to be bruised and really just takes control of this young man's body. So this is a victim here in this text, a helpless son. Then we see likely the most applicable to us, the church now, the hopeless disciples in verse 40. As this man reports back to Jesus that he besought his disciples to cast the demon out, but they could not. But I wonder, shouldn't they be able to? Jesus has just sent them out on this missionary journey, this short-term mission trip. He's given them power to heal, to cast out demons, and to preach the kingdom. He takes Peter, James, and John away, and they go through an amazing thing that we see in the text last week. But here, the disciples, it's reported, the ones left, the ones who otherwise could have cast out demons, are now not able to. If I'm thinking correctly on verse 41... It seems that Jesus thinks that they should be able to. As he says in response to this, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. Now surely his accusation is toward more than just these disciples, but it comes immediately after this report of his disciples. Phil Riken says the disciples did not fail for lack of effort, but due to their lack of faith. It was not because they had lost their powers or because they had used the wrong technique for exercising demons, but because of their unbelief. So we find them here as victims of their own lack of faith. We for sure can make another point here. As we left off last time in verse 33, Peter was saying after seeing what happened there, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's stay on this mountain. Let's make three tabernacles, one for each of you guys. And we'll just stay here and we'll worship. And we understand God intervened and said, no, we shouldn't do this. Well, then we come and find this happening at the base of this mountain. And it's a good proof text for you and I to remember that life is not always going to be mountaintop experiences. And we can't always just stay on the mountaintop. William McDonald says this well here. He says, from the Mount of Glory, Jesus and the disciples returned the next day to the Valley of Human Need. And certainly that's where we, the church, often have to operate. In fact, it seems to be as part of our ritual that we we come in and we gather together and we sing these songs dear to us. We pray these prayers and confess these doctrines. We hear the word preached. We get ourselves pumped up. We're here in what we would call the mountaintop of glory because the rest of the week we're going to live in the valley of human need. And certainly we find that here of Jesus' disciples. Well, thankfully, there aren't just victims in this text. There is a victor. Jesus rebukes this demon and he heals this boy. After he speaks his exasperation in verse 41 and verse 42, we see that Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and delivered him again to his father. Just as Jesus was the only one who could help this boy, we must remember as his disciples now that he is the only one who can help the world. What is our job? Is it for you and I to save the world? No, it's for you and I to tell them about Jesus who can save them. Praise the Lord for that confirmation in the text here today. As disciples, you and I now learn 
great lessons from these disciples then. We get to see their good and their bad. And we can apply this to our own lives. One of the things we've already applied is that we cannot live and serve simply on the basis of past victories. Surely those things are helpful and meaningful to us in our lives, but we can't stay there. We've got to constantly be alert. We've got to constantly be disciplined and trusting in the Lord to do the work that only He can do. Verse 41 provides for us a real look into the mind of Christ. What was He thinking about as He went through His ministry? Surely we read here in a moment that He's going to set His face to the cross again. But even then, what was He feeling? What were His emotions? Boy, it's... Very hard for us as his people to read this as he says you're a faithless and a perverse generation. And in exasperation ask the question, how much longer do I have to be with you and suffer you? He is to a point here with the people in his life and he cries out about it. Wearsby writes, we are prone to forget how long suffering our Lord had to be while he was ministering on earth, especially with his own disciples. A good point. I'm glad he's that long suffering. But we must know that even in his frustration with his disciples, what do we read that happens here? I mean, he, he just says, How long do I have to be with you anymore? But then he finishes that statement with, Bring thy son hither, bring me the boy. Even during this time of frustration with this generation, with his disciples' powerlessness because of their faith or their lack of it, he still has compassion and calls for this boy and helps this boy. Oh, let that be a measure to us, church, on how we must operate. Really, this portion of Scripture paints a picture for us of the situation in the world today that we live in. Jesus is gone. He had gone up on the mountain here and left these disciples there with the crowd. Well, he's gone away now, hasn't he? John 14, he said he's going to go away and that he would come again and receive us unto himself, that where he is there we may be also. In Acts chapter 1, we find that he did go away. And the angel said, why do you stand here gazing up into the heavens? He'll come back just like as he went. But so he's gone. And he's left it with us, the church, for a bit. And the world we live in is full of demons and spirits. And often we find the church helpless because we are powerless. And we lack power because of unbelief. We lack power because of our lack of prayer and fasting. We lack power because we simply do not want to let the Holy Spirit lead us. We say we believe in God, but but do we trust Him to do the things that only He, God, can do? All too often, we simply try to serve Him in our own strength. That's what the disciples must have been doing here. And when we try to serve in our own strength, we're going to get the same result. Nothing happens. Or at least nothing that demonstrates The majesty of God. So what is the point to the church here today? That we should cast out more demons this week? No, I think the point here to the church today is that we must trust God to do all the spiritual work that only He can do. So we go from a desperate father then to confused disciples. Verse 43 says that they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered, everyone at at all things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples, Let these sayings sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. 
But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them, that they perceived it not. And they feared to ask him of that saying. Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him. And said unto him, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one here casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. And I don't point out the confused disciples here as to say that we are never confused. Certainly I live most of my Christian life confused. Most of my non-Christian life confused. Most of anything that I do, I'm confused. You can say amen there, dear, if you need to. But I just pointed out, maybe as a comfort to you and I, that even these guys, they got it wrong sometimes. You're going to do the same. We're going to do the same. But there's instruction here and there's help. Jesus begins this by talking to them about suffering. And he predicts his betrayal. doesn't specifically point out Judas here, but he does say at the end of verse 44 that he would be delivered into the hands of men. So in the midst of this amazement by the crowd in verse number 43, Jesus begins to teach the disciples another lesson and a second time that he's going to die by being betrayed into the hands of men. Luke records a very important thing for us in verse 45, that they did not understand this because it was hidden from them. Now that's an important note. I would say this is great information that Luke shares with us. Because it's easy to be hard on these who are closest to Jesus. But here we find that some things just weren't shown clearly to them yet. There are for sure two sides to understanding this verse. And I'm going to give you two sides, but that's my take, is that they just they didn't understand because it wasn't time. Because later Jesus is going to open their understanding. Chapter 24, verse 45 says, He opened their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. So that's one side to this, that Jesus was telling them about His forthcoming death. And it just wasn't revealed to them yet fully to understand it. Luke does clarify, though, a point for us, and we need to make this point. They understood not, verse 45, because it was hid from them. But then he goes on to say that they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. Now, could we understand this to mean that should they had asked for clarification, he would have revealed it to them then? Maybe, I don't know, but for sure two things are pointed out. One, some of this information was hidden from them. It was divine and not for human ears yet. But two, they don't receive further clarification because they don't ask. Now that is an accusation and shows us the confusion of these disciples. After all this time that they spent side by side with Jesus, they still do not trust Him enough to share their fears with Him. Do you share your fears with the Lord? I think one part of our exercise of prayer that is preventing us from having faith is admitting our fears. I remember as a boy, it was, it was manly to say, I ain't afraid. Is it Ghostbusters that's, I ain't afraid of no ghost? Is this, maybe that's what I have in my head here. 
We had a fire escape off the back of our church building in the, in the church I went to there in Commerce, Georgia. And I don't remember how high it was, but in my memory as a seven-year-old boy, it was high as the ceiling, you know? It was probably only as high as the stage. But we had a club, me and the other boys in the church there. And to be in the club, you had to jump off that fire escape. Man. I helped come up with those rules, but I was really afraid to jump off this fire escape. I remember my, my, one of my buddies, he just, he just climbed up over it and jumped off and landed. And I thought, that's going to hurt. So I got down over the edge and I hung myself off there and got my feet as close to the ground as I could get. And I let go and I landed and hoped I didn't die or break my leg and get a spanking from my parents because of it. It's amazing how... That childhood pride to not want to admit my fears has affected my adult living. The Lord convicted me of this this week. I, I went into my prayer closet and I said, Lord, I'm afraid of this. I'm not telling you. I'm still too proud to tell you. But I'm afraid of this and I'm afraid of that and I'm afraid of the other. And I just went through some things. And I wish I could say heaven came down and glory filled my soul and I never had fear again after that. That's not what happened at all. But I knew that my Lord knew. And I knew that He and I had talked about it. Isn't it nice sometimes just to be able to talk to somebody about something? Just to know they're in on it with you? These disciples here, for fear, didn't ask Jesus of this saying. Well, if they couldn't ask Jesus, who could ask Jesus? These were his guys. They were in the club. They jumped off the fire escape for him. They left all and followed him. But for them, they knew Jesus was the Messiah. Peter has already testified this. But they didn't quite yet understand how he came to suffer for sinners. And the idea that Someone as powerful as Jesus would die in weakness was a bit unthinkable to, to most everybody at this point. So this tells us that these disciples were confused. They were confused to how Jesus, with his glorious power, could ever come to this humiliating death that he was telling them, this is what I'm set out to do. They couldn't put together the crowd's reaction to his miracles they couldn't put together that with the prediction that the nation would turn against him and that they, they would kill him well how about us church do we trust him enough to ask for clarification do we trust him enough to share our fears with him or do we operate without clarity because we let our fears win surely at times the timing will not be right for God to reveal things to us, but this can't always be the case because we are His ambassadors in the world now to do His will. Well, Jesus talks to them about suffering. And then as we go on in the text, we see that He talks to them about spiritual greatness. Verse 30, 46 says, There arose a reasoning among them of which should be the greatest. <laughs> so... It, in a bad way, not in a good way. I'm not saying I'm like Peter in a positive. I'm saying it, it never ceases to surprise me how much these guys are just like us, just normal folks. I mean, they go from we don't quite understand and we're afraid to ask Jesus to, but which one of us is going to be the greatest? 
<laughs> J. Vernon McGee spoke well here. He said, after the transfiguration, you would think they would be humbled and obedient to his will. On the contrary, they became ambitious. They were thinking of the crown and ignored the cross. They were desirous of vainglory. This has been the curse of his disciples from that day to this. It is one of the curses of the church. Galatians 5.26, Paul writes a warning here to the church. He says, let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another or envying one another. R.C. Sproul writes here, while Jesus focuses on his impending suffering, they quibble over places of preeminence. God help us not to live our Christian lives that way. Not to operate as the church in this way. He gives an illustration to them. Verse 47 says, because he perceived the thoughts of their hearts. So he takes a child and he sets this child up beside him. Now, the illustration in standing this little child up beside them, in my carnal nature I want to say, well sure he did, they were being childish. But uniquely, as they struggle to figure out greatness, Jesus never teaches them about greatness. He simply teaches them how to be the least. The example of greatness that Jesus gives them as they consider which of us is to be the greatest is this little child. How can I be great in God's kingdom? Well, I can be helpless and dependent. I can be without status. I can be one living by faith as a child must do. Someone has said the only thing worse than a child trying to act like an adult is when an adult acts like a child. There's a great difference in being childlike and being childish. We for sure should be childlike. Jesus' illustration is that in verse 47, he puts this child up. His application comes in verse 48 as he says, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. So Jesus says, The one who welcomes a child on my behalf welcomes both the Father and the Son, is therefore the greatest among men. The one most willing to humble himself and serve others in God's eyes is the greatest. Riken says, True greatness in the eyes of God comes when we take the lowest place, seeking no recognition for ourselves, but showing concern for the weak and for the helpless. J.C. Ryle wrote a stern warning here to the church. He said, Of all creatures, none has so little right to be proud as man. And of all men, none ought to be so humble as the Christian. For sure this is the case. So we've come to know the gospel. The power of the cross. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds. He died for our sins. Well, we end this morning with the last two verses of our text for today. And then we'll pick up in verse 51 the next time. As John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. Jesus talks to them here about exclusivism and open-mindedness. John says to Jesus that they were trying to keep a man who wasn't a part of their group from casting out demons. 
Seems legit, right? They weren't hanging out with Jesus. Well, Jesus hadn't given them the power. So they should stop doing this in Jesus' name. He's, he's thinking logically there. But Jesus gives them doctrine on it as he says, don't stop him. Because anyone who is not against us is for us. From this we learned that the twelve were not to see themselves as God's exclusive representatives. Rather, they should have rejoiced that the power of God was being manifested on earth by others as well. Isn't this what he sent them out to do? To preach the kingdom, to see the kingdom replicated? And here it is being replicated. So it goes with us, the church. We are not the only ones. It's easy to take that on. We, we love our church. We love the people in our church. We love our preacher. We love the things he preaches to us. And we love the songs and the songs that we sing together. And we get the mentality of, we've got the perfect church. And the negative that comes behind that is, well, every other church is something wrong with it then. But I think, to some extent, we must remember that God made us different for purpose. So, Jesus teaches here about exclusivism and open-mindedness. Church, where do we find ourselves this morning? How can we apply this text to our lives? Often we are confused disciples. But thankfully we have God's word to lead us and guide us and direct us. Maybe we're a victim today. Maybe you're like this father or this boy who just needs Jesus to change your life. He'll do that through the gospel. What I mean by that is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. God became flesh, lived a sinless life, died on a cross for the remission of your sins, conquered death and came back to life again, and is now enthroned for your salvation. Your sins can be forgiven. If you will call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Maybe you find yourself in the place of these powerless disciples here and you say, oh my goodness, I just don't feel like I'm getting anything done for God's kingdom, for the church, toward eternal rewards. Why don't you by faith this morning say, I'm going to give up holding out my fears. I'm going to admit my fears. I'm going to submit myself fully to Him in prayer in fasting at times. And I'm going to let God work through me in a powerful way that only He can. And I'm going to quit trying to do what it is that He needs to do. Maybe you're here this morning and those fears have gotten so bad that you, you get confused like these disciples. Well, it's clear. The way to be great in the eyes of God is to be a servant. Do you have a servant mentality? Are you willing to serve the least of these? Let's pray and ask God to bless this time. Lord, we're thankful for time together in your word with your church. We ask your blessing upon this time as we respond to the word of God that has been presented to us. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight but that it would be not I, but Christ that would do a work through the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the people today. Have your own way as we pray in Jesus' name.
Let's bow and take some time to respond to the word of God before us and do business with the Lord, whatever he's laid on our hearts. Ms. Wiggins, will you pray for us?